I'm Nora McNerney, and this is Terrible Thanks for Asking. There comes a time in every romantic relationship where you need to talk about where things are going. Okay, you got to be honest about what you want and don't want out of the relationship. Is this heading toward marriage? Are you going to live together? And if so, where are you going to live? And do you want kids? That's a big one because kids are a big commitment. It's a lifetime commitment, and not just for your lifetime, you are committing to their lifetime. And Mark's girlfriend wants kids, and he does not. And that's a fully valid life choice. A lot of people don't want kids. They are one way to find meaning in life. They're not the only way. But Mark's decision is a little bit deeper than just a preference. It goes a little further than just simply not wanting kids. Okay, so Mark, I would love for you to tell me, uh, what did your mom look like? Wow. Um, my mom was five foot eight. She had wavy brown hair and uh, she wore glasses, kind of, I mean, I think she felt that they were pretty artsy for her time. When she was younger, she used to wear like the, the cat style glasses from whenever that was, like the 50s or 60s. She was really the most social person I've ever encountered, for sure. She used to, probably starting in September, just have our kitchen table full of Christmas cards. This is pre-social media, so she didn't have any way of getting a hold of people on the interweb. So she just would pile Christmas cards on the counter and then write personalized Christmas cards to probably 200, maybe more, of her friends from the States. Like, not just a generic letter. She would write personalized things to every single friend of hers that she could think of. And then our wall, in return, come November and December, our wall in the kitchen was just everybody else's cards back to her. It was pretty amazing. When Mark was 17, his mom got sick with cancer, and she didn't want him to worry, so she kept it from him as long as she could. She wanted him to enjoy his last year of high school, and he did, but when he was about to go to college, he knew she was sick, and she asked him, will you stay home with me and dad? Will you help out? And Mark said, yeah, mom, of course. So while all of his friends went off to college, Mark stayed in his small hometown in Canada. His girlfriend, Karen, was just going into 12th grade, and he cared about her a lot, so he broke up with her. I didn't want to be home and have that be the reason I was home. I didn't want to have my mindset so focused on Karen that I wasn't there for my mom mm-hmm. during that time. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Yeah, I think that makes sense, and also... Young relationships are really consuming, and what's even more consuming, Mark, is that you are uh, coming of age and having a really singular experience. I don't think I have to do a survey of your town to assume that you were probably the only kid your age taking care of your mother. Yeah, I I can't think of anyone else at the moment, for sure. It was just Mark. 
just Mark spending a few hours a day escaping to the sanctuary of his church, playing the drums alone in a big empty space, coming home to keep his mom company and bring her water and love her. Breaking up with Karen was a protective measure. It helped Mark focus on this time with his mom and It also protected Karen from spending her senior year emotionally caretaking her boyfriend. Mark doesn't see much of Karen during this time, but he knows that Karen still cares about him and that she cares about his mother. Karen and her mother used to come visit my mom in the hospital, and Karen and her friend would come and sing songs to my mom and just hang out with her for you know, an hour or two. And then my mom used to journal a lot of, like, who came to visit her during the day and all that stuff. So I would I would look through her journal and see that that happened. When Mark's mom dies, it's Christmas time. He's still just a kid, and he has no idea what to do or how to fill his time. But across the street from his house, there's an event center, and there's a Christmas play that is being held there, and some of his friends and Karen are in it, so that's where he goes. (laughs) So I went there to see a whole bunch of my friends do this thing, and then Karen and I briefly spoke that night, and then slowly, over the next few weeks, there was like a phone call here or there, and then... I think what happened was I ended up just inviting her over to like watch a movie at our house and we hung out and classic. Yeah. Let's watch a movie. I bet. Okay. <laughs> yeah. yeah, no, that's what that's what it was. And then we still weren't dating, but she came over and uh I started um working at a local video store back when people went and got videos. And uh like my first day of work, she brought me like the best sandwich I'd ever eaten (laughs) and a bunch of stuff for my supper and with a huge letter. What did the letter say? I think she was just expressing to me how sad she was that I lost mom and how amazing my mom was. And I'm pretty sure I have the letter somewhere still. I don't know where it is, but it was pretty much just saying that she felt so bad for me. And There might have been a hint of that she missed being around me and stuff like that. And I think that's pretty much when we just said, okay, it's back on. It's back on. And just three years later, they're married. Mark is 22. Karen is 20. I mean, going into even marrying Karen, my whole prayer for our relationship was like we would live long, happy, healthy lives together. I would say that all the time in my head. That would be, like, my prayer. It's simple enough. That is a very, very humble ask. He's not looking for fame or wealth. Just time. Just time. Because he and Karen, they enjoy their time together. They travel a lot. They go all over the U.S. They go to Hong Kong. They end up buying a timeshare in Hawaii. And eventually, Mark decides to go to school for recording and engineering. But the school is in Los Angeles. So their marriage is a long-distance one for a little while, which works. It works because they don't have kids, and it works because that's the kind of marriage they have where they have a shared vision, they both work towards it, and they also really, 
respect each other's individual paths. She definitely wanted me to kind of go for my dreams or like go after what I was interested in. I will say that during that time, Karen had a way harder time with the time apart than I did because we rented out our house that we had bought together and uh, she moved in with her parents into a room in their basement while I was gone. And uh, she wouldn't tell me this directly, but I did find out through other people and eventually through her that she really struggled during the time apart, but she didn't want it to have that kind of change my experience at all. And she really loved coming to LA to hang out with me. So those parts were great. <laughs> Who wouldn't? She's like, oh, sorry, guys, I have to leave Alberta to go to Los Angeles. Yeah. In the beginning of being married, we planned on having children, but I think we kind of just decided that kids were not something that we were thinking of doing. I think we both decided that we didn't want to have children. At that point, we just liked traveling and the freedom of not having kids. Yeah, that's like a very, uh, almost kind of scary thing to talk about in our culture. People are like, but what? Why wouldn't you want, what? Yeah, we definitely had a lot of that. I don't know what it was. We we started going to Hawaii and then finding out that, oh, we really like it here. <laughs> so. We're going to take a quick break. We're back. When Mark's mom first got sick, when he was a teenager, she kept her cancer a secret from her husband and from Mark as long as she could. She didn't want them to worry. She didn't want it to ruin things for them. It's been about 12 years since Mark's mother died, and he's just finished school in L.A., and he and Karen have been married 10 years, and they're just a regular young couple living in Alberta, Canada. And I didn't know when Karen started having doctor's appointments she would do it when I was at work. And she just started having stomach pain. And then I came to find out that she had already gone to the doctor a few times. And then one morning, uh, her pain got so bad that we just had to take her to the hospital at like five in the morning. We'd been in eMERGE for half the day already, but they did a CT scan and that came back. And the doctor was just kind of looking at it really funny. And just was saying, he's like, if I didn't know any better, I'd say this might be cancer. And like immediately I had an insane pain in my lower left side. I had to leave the room for a bit. She was talking with the doctor still. She was very, very much calm about the whole thing at that point. But I left the front doors of Emerge and went and sat on a bench by myself for a bit. And then I just kind of collected myself and came back in and was trying to be as strong as possible. <laughs> that pain in Mark's side doesn't go away. It's not cancer. It's the pain of seeing someone you love suffer. Mark is, once again, a caregiver. Not the same way as he was with his mother. Back then, 
His dad did most of the medical stuff, and Mark was there to assist and to support, but this time Mark is the husband. Karen is his wife. And he does everything he can. He brings her to Mexico for treatments they can't get in Canada. He spends all of his days at her side trying to get her through this awful disease. I was doing way more medical (laughs) stuff, just giving more meds. I was doing a lot of TPN, like just giving her food through a tube (laughs) hooked up to a backpack because she was just constantly throwing up and just constantly in pain. So it was just a lot more medical and a lot more real and (laughs) painful. That prayer he said, a long, healthy, happy life, a long, healthy, happy life. He's still saying it. But Karen has pancreatic cancer, and the likelihood of her living through this is not good. And it keeps getting worse. It gets to a point where, like, I can't be her husband, like, and the nurse. Like, I can't be both. I just... And she would often want me to just be your husband but like there was no time in the day like it I just was always having to drop new meds and get her food ready and do all that stuff it's not that this is just a lot for Mark it's just a lot it's a lot Karen's cancer is painful and even though Mark is the person who wants to who needs to be there doing this stuff for her it also just never feels like he can do enough We had home care workers come in and tell us, like, her pain is out of control. We need to get you in and just kind of get over this pain crisis, and then we can get you back home. That was always the plan. So we went into the hospital, and we got immediately taken up to the oncology unit. I think it was pretty late at night when we got there. But it was a lot of kind of repeating what had been happening at home and the meds that she was on and all of these things. But at the same time, having other people going and getting those meds for Karen while I was able to just kind of sit back and help her remember all that stuff and just be beside her while it was happening. At the hospital, Mark isn't her nurse, isn't her caregiver. He's just her husband. Karen loves her nurses and For that, Mark loves them. He trusts them. He appreciates them. He appreciates that he can just let his guard down a bit to be there with Karen, not just for her. It was a huge relief, I think, for both of us. Like, even even that night when we got there, it was a pain crisis for Karen, but she was still uh, (laughs) so happy that I could just be hanging out with her and beside her and not having to be stressing about all of that other stuff. They don't go home. They end up spending nine months at the hospital. Nine months, which in a way makes it become their home. The people there, the nurses who care for Karen, they become a real part of their lives. And the reality of their lives is that Karen is dying. (sighs) This is hard. (laughs) So she, um, what do I want to say about this that's like makes it 
sound as important as it is. <laughs> she just, um, we get to a point where she has done so many procedures and just like, just awful things that you would never want to do to someone. Like so many times she went in for different procedures and stuff like that, where the doctors would come back and be like, we are really hurting this girl. But the whole time she would be wanting to do it because she was afraid of how I would handle it afterwards, like if she was gone. So her whole thing was like, she's going through this stuff because she's worried about me. And I'm like suffering because she's going through it. So it's it's really rough. But we get to a point where all of a sudden, like she had a day where she was able to like just express to the doctors, like the team of doctors that was there that she wanted to, um, she just wanted to be done. Like she just didn't want to do it anymore. And she talked with me about it, but it was her choice. And I, she didn't make me make that choice for her, which I'm so thankful for. And from that point on, it was really just like three days of me and a whole bunch of my friends and family just hanging out at the hospital. And then eventually, like, I, I wasn't even in the room the moment she took her last breath. Mark wasn't, but two nurses were. These were the women who had cared for Karen for nine months, who were there to attend to her physically so Mark could just be there as a husband. When she took her last breath and they came right out and got me and it was, I just spent a bunch of time with her on my own in there and then just kind of like, I had no idea what to do with myself. I ran out into the hallway and <laughs> just walked around. I don't, I don't even know, like I can't pinpoint what I actually was doing or thinking at that time. It was just all a blur. Mark's friend had recently lost his sister, and he shows up right away to comfort Mark and to give him a list of tasks, all those things you have to do immediately after death that keep your brain and your body busy. He kind of gave them to me immediately, and then my group of friends just kind of like helped me so much and took over in planning Karen's memorial. And then my whole job during the memorial was like to help come up with things to say about her in the obituary, but then I had a friend make it sound prettier than I could. The rest of my job was to pick music and pictures for the slideshow, which is like my favorite thing to do ever is to look at pictures of people I love. So that's, it was the best job ever. After the memorial, I pretty much just took off and traveled by myself off and on for like five months, just here and there. And who could blame him? Who would blame him? There's a very famous book by the rabbi Harold S. Kushner called When Bad Things Happen to Good People. Because Kushner is a religious leader, you kind of expect him to say, hey, it's God's plan, but he kind of says the opposite, which is probably why people love this book. He says, and this is a quote, why do we have to insist on everything being reasonable? Why must everything happen for a specific reason? Why can't we let the universe have a few rough edges? 
The rough edges of the universe have wounded Mark twice now. He's 34 years old, and he's watched his mother and his wife die of cancer, and now he's just going to go spend some time alone. We're taking a very quick break. We're back, and Mark has been traveling for months after the death of his wife, Karen. And in those travels, in those months, he's also kept in touch with some of the nurses because they get it. They get it. They spent all that time together, and they were there with him, and they have been there for many patients like Karen. And for their families, these nurses have witnessed sickness and recovery and death, and they just get it. Here's one of Karen's nurses. So Mark had kind of stayed in touch with several of the nurses um, on the unit since he lived there basically for nine months they'd kind of turned into his family a little bit. Um, So we had stayed in touch as well, along with some of the other nurses. Um, And then, so, you know, we'd went for coffee a couple times, just purely like in a friendship way. And then eventually Mark was selling Karen in his house. Um, And so I had ended up over there one day just helping him pack up some boxes and that sort of thing. You met Mark during uh, a terrible time in his life. What in that time of his life did you notice about him? I noticed that he was a wonderful husband. Um, I thought Karen was a wonderful lady, and Mark did an amazing job caring for her, um, even though we were taking care of a lot of her medical needs. He was still living there with her 24-7. And yeah, he just treated her wonderfully. This nurse is one of Karen's favorite nurses. One of the people who was there for Karen's last breaths. Her name is Melissa. And she's Mark's girlfriend. And if you're thinking, what? (laughs) What? If you're bristling at all, I want you to just listen. Melissa is an amazing nurse. She's so compassionate and caring. The thing I actually liked most about Melissa being a nurse in the beginning would have been the fact that I could leave while she was there because Karen loved her so much that she was comfortable enough that I could leave and go do stuff that I had to do outside of the hospital. Melissa and Karen would have conversations that were super deep, and Karen would go to Melissa for, like, the toughest conversations and all of that stuff, and just witnessing how Melissa was with her is just, it was amazing. Like, it just made my life so much better, not to mention, like, how much it helped Karen. Like, who wouldn't want to be friends with someone that's just so kind and caring and just, like, such a nice person? And then that just kind of gradually turned into more than a friendship. And so it was probably about six months after Karen passed away that we kind of started dating, taking things 
extremely slowly because it felt like it was very soon for us. And we knew that it was going to seem very soon for the rest of the world as well. Oh, we love the rest of the world. I know. (laughs) Love all the people who have never been through a thing telling you how you should approach a thing. It's one of my favorite parts. Absolutely. And actually, Mark's friends and family seemed like actually fairly supportive, which I was surprised by. But I really didn't want to like rub anything in their faces because I was imagining that that would be quite uncomfortable for them. But I mean, especially like, like my friends and family were really hesitant. Um, So, yeah. Oh, my current husband's mom told him not to date me. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) She was like, oh, no, oh, no, 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 no. And and Sherry listens to this podcast. Cher Bear, you got one thing wrong. But, uh, But I understand. I understand. Everybody, everybody is sure that... They know the outcome. Everybody wants to make sure, you know, that they yeah. can bubble wrap you against something. And mm-hmm. and the reality is, like, you can't because the thing that you think you are insulating someone against is uh, not the thing that will hurt them. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and that was my dad, too. My dad is a wonderful man, but he he really was being very protective and did not want anything to happen with Mark yeah, and I. He was and like, don't get a used. Get a, get a, <laughs> yeah. get, buy yeah. new. Okay. Oh, yeah. He was straight up like, no. <laughs> so, yeah. I tell everyone, I'm like, find a widow. Find someone divorced. No offense, Melissa. You're too yeah. fresh. <laughs> Like, yeah, if, totally. anything, if anything, I'd be like, don't date Melissa. I mean, she's yeah, just exactly. I mean, like you guys, you've yeah, you've been in a huge relationship and you've stuck with somebody through the worst time in their life. And like, how amazing is that to be able to say like, not many people can say that they've done that. Like, I feel like I like I hate what Mark's been through, but I feel so lucky in so many ways, this match seems predestined to me. Like, yes, we just said the universe is random and those edges are rough, but how else do you explain that kind of connection? Not just Mark and Melissa, but also their connection to Karen. She is one of the forces that brought them together. She's one of the forces that connects them. But there's that one big issue we heard about at the top of the episode that seems insurmountable. Melissa wants kids, and Mark doesn't. Mark had expressed to me that his biggest fear in having kids now at that point was that everybody that he loved got cancer and died, which was totally fair, and he just felt like if if we had kids, they were going to get sick and die or something was going to happen to one of us. When Mark's mom died, his biggest fear was that someone else he loved would die. And guess what? Karen did. And as a person who does believe, I mean, maybe not believe, but sometimes just sort of believes that you can jinx things by raising your hopes a smidge too high, that does make a certain kind of sense. And Melissa understands even why Mark feels this way. But I also felt like I didn't want us to be in a relationship for like five, six, seven years. And then us realize, yeah, no, Mark still doesn't want kids and I still do. And then us have to go our separate ways at that point. I I didn't want to rush him, but I also didn't want to waste either of our time. 
What I'm going to say next will not shock you. After his mom died, Mark saw no mental health specialist whatsoever, got no mental health care. Then he took care of his wife for a year and a half, and she died, and then he also got no mental health care. None. But Melissa is like, I love you, Mark. I do, dude. I don't think she said dude. But Melissa's like, Mark, I love you, and you need to go talk to someone who isn't me. Go take care of yourself. Go to therapy. And Mark does it because she's right and because he does love Melissa. And his therapist does what therapists tend to do. They ask him a lot of questions. They help him find the answer. And it turns out the question is not as simple as Mark do you want kids? I talk to a therapist in town maybe once a month or once every couple of weeks for a year and just kind of went over my f- fear of that and almost coming to the conclusion that I'm being ridiculous thinking that someone else that I loved would just automatically just get a terrible disease and die. It was almost a statistical thing that I was just like, do you want to be with Melissa? And then if the answer is yes, then like you have to have kids. And, and then I was just thinking like, I can do that to be with Melissa. I can do that for sure. To be with Melissa, he can risk it. To be with Melissa, Mark can put his fears in context that His mother's death and Karen's death, they're not related. They're not two in a series of falling dominoes leading him to more and more and more heartbreak. And there's not a choice he can make that will prevent his suffering. Even the choice to not have children is a choice to lose Melissa. So it's not saving him any pain. It's just him deciding what brand of pain he'd like to experience. Would he like the immediate heartbreak of losing Melissa? or the maybe heartbreak of losing a child. One day, out on a walk, it fully hits Mark. And he stops in his tracks, and Melissa thinks for a moment, wait, is he going to propose? And no, no, he's not. He just stopped me in the middle of this field and told me that he wanted to have kids with me, which was... Like, it was really sweet because it was such a big deal. Like, it meant that we could move forward and with our futures together and that we weren't going to have to, like, go our separate ways. But for now, we do have to go our separate ways. We'll be back next week to continue the story as Mark and Melissa move forward together, past Mark's fears of the worst-case scenario, and into the future of building their family. I'm Nora McInerney. This has been terrible. Thanks for asking. Our production team is Marcel Malikibu, Jacob Maldonado Medina, Hannah Meacock Ross, Jordan Turgeon, and Phyllis Fletcher. Our theme music is by Joffrey Lamar Wilson. We are a production of American Public Media. 
This episode was recorded in my closet. If you heard the dogs barking, if you heard my kids fighting over a remote control car, if you heard whatever else is going on outside this room, thank you for being gracious. Why am I talking like this? I don't know. Um, I also, we, I moved out of the, uh, the, the closet office. I now sit on the floor here and record because my husband set up his drum set so that he could have a little bit of joy in the world. And, um, good for him, I guess. Good for him. Good for him. Not good for my back, but good for him. Bye.